Welcome to The Sober Unicorn. We are a gay-hosted, all-inclusive podcast about sobriety and addiction recovery for the LGBT plus community and all of our allies. I'm your host, Holden, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, 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 it's Holden, and I am an alcoholic. I hope everybody's doing well today. Today, I'm being joined by Brandon. Hello. Hey, Brandon, why don't you tell everybody your age, sobriety date, and what your drug of choice was? Yep, uh, my age is 38. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, 8.30 of 21, and my drug of choice was primarily alcohol. Okay, well, I'm, I mean, I'm super glad you uh, joined us on the podcast today here at The Sober Unicorn. Um, and I know that for you and your recovery, there's a huge difference between being abstinent from alcohol and being sober. Um, can you explain for you what those differences are? Sure, uh, not a problem. So for me, you know, for years and years, I was in and out of, uh, you know, different uh, rooms of, of 12-step recovery and programs. Um, and uh, my big thing with abstinence is uh, I would just get I would stop, you know, drinking or, or, or doing, you know, other drugs and anything else under the sun that I was doing at the time. And I would just get abstinent where I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't uh, doing any kind of work to maintain uh, sobriety or actually get in a state of being recovered or even trying to, you know, start the work to become, you know, to to, of recovery to become recovered. And so for me, I would just, I would get abstinent and I would, uh, you know, I would all of a sudden have this effect, which I didn't know what it was and I couldn't put it into words at first, but um, it, it would be this, this feeling would come over me of where I'm just dealing with this rawness of my emotions and it feels like I'm locked up with them and like I'm, like I'm in jail, like this mental and emotional jail. And, you know, I, I would become restless, irritable and discontent and until I, I picked up, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous um, and really started digesting what it would talk about and like the doctor's opinion, I didn't understand what, what those feelings were. I couldn't put it into words. And so I would just, I would be, you know, in this state of restlessness, discontented, and just, uh, I, I, my life would be unmanageable. You know, that's for me when my life really truly becomes unmanageable, when I don't have the benefit of any anesthetic or any way to, to chemically cope with everything that's going on around me in life. And I feel like I'm trapped. And, you know, it talks about that a little bit in the big book, uh, specifically on page 52, where it talks about, you know, being bedeviled, where it talks about, you know, having trouble with personal relationships, couldn't control my emotional nature. I was a prey to misery and depression, and I, I couldn't make a living. And I had a feeling of uselessness. You know, I was full of fear and I was unhappy. But, and I was, and like I says, I couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And that was, and that was me uh, to a T, uh, where I would, I would get abstinent. I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't take a step. I wouldn't do any work. And I would just, you know, be completely just brutalized by life. And until I, I understood, you know, the causes and conditions of what drove me, you know, I, I you know, didn't understand the, 
what the difference between being abstinent and just not drinking and hanging in there was and actually having sobriety and that freedom that comes along with it. Because to me, that's, that's the true miracle is the freedom that comes from sobriety. So I think like being abstinent, like I kind of agreeing with you is we have the obsession of the mind, the obsess of wanting to drink because of we use that as the coping mechanism for a lot of things in our life to escape from the bullshit, to escape from things of our past. And then once we fuel that obsession of the mind is when the allergy of the body kicks in with the craving of drinking and that phenomenon of craving. And so I think it's so important to, in order to be recovered, as you said, we have to fully understand why we have that obsession of the mind. Because we're not going to fuel the allergy of the body if we don't give in to the obsession of the mind first. Correct. So, I mean, lead us up to stepping foot inside the rooms and actually conceding to doing the program so you were now in sobriety rather than just being abstinent. So, yeah. So, for me, what it was, you know, that led me into the rooms, you know, some 15 years ago originally was, you know, I I was in this state of I wasn't doing really well in my life. I was, I, like I said, you know, I was stuck. I had no idea where I wanted to go in life. I had no idea who I was, who I wanted to be. And, you know, I, I grew up in a time and a place where, you know, in my, in my family history, you know, my mom was a, a drug addict. She's, you know, deceased now. Uh, I have an aunt that died from addiction, you know, in her forties and you know, I just I have this long family history of mental illness and and addiction and alcoholism going back for generations. And so and then, you know, I suffered from the systemic family disease of, you know, alcoholism and addiction. Uh, and my mom was in and out of treatment several times growing up. And she and I grew up in the back of the rooms of AA and NA. And so I kind of had an inkling of, you know, if I can go and get into these rooms and just not drink, I, you know, I'll be doing a lot better than I am now, and maybe I'll have some kind of direction in my life. And so that's what ultimately led me into the rooms. Now, that's not what kept me into the room, kept me in the rooms, but that's what led me in the rooms, and that's when I entered that, that other cycle of constantly going to meetings, not doing the work, uh, being abstinent, and then still being brutalized by life because I wasn't doing the work. And I can be just as separate, different, and alone in the rooms of AA, not doing the work as I can be out, you know, out there in a bar with a head full of AA and a belly full of booze, you know, trying to drink like normal people. And so that's that's a place where I went into, and that was a really dark period of my life. That was to me ultimately darker than previously because then I was one progressing into the later stages of my alcoholism as we all do and also I had all this like knowledge of like the big book and you know what I'd hear in meetings and you know having a sponsor and them relaying stuff to me but then there was nothing I could do about it because I didn't have that that power like it talks about you know in in you know the big book of you know ha having that lack of power and I needed that power greater than myself, obviously, but just where do I find it? And so I didn't understand that. And it took me a long time to comprehend that. So <clears throat> take us to the point where 
you were finally able to comprehend that you had to depend on a higher power greater than yourself and how you came to terms with realizing that you were no longer in control. Yeah, so, you know, when I, when I, come into the, when I came in to the room originally, I had a lot of prejudice and, and, and ideas about life, about a higher power, you know, this, this, this driving force that we have. And I, I had all of that you know, from leftover and remnants of, you know, religion from my childhood. And, and to me, the thing is, is my prejudices don't look like prejudices. And that's what really kind of got me for a long time was because, like I said, they don't, you know, my actual prejudices, those aren't prejudices. That's just the way it really is, you know, because I, I have this bent perception of reality and my perception of reality is unbearable. It's intolerable. And so, you know, I had to start shedding a lot of those old ideas and open myself up, you know, and doing the work in, in steps one and two, especially to, to make that, you know, decision ultimately in step three to turn my will and life over to a higher power, you know, God, as I understand, you know, God. And so getting to that place, and for years, I thought I knew what step three meant. And I would do this cycle that's in a lot of programs called the, the uh, AA or the you know, NA waltz, where it's you know, step one, two, three, drink, step one, two, three, drink. And I did that for years, where I would think that I was like ready to make that decision and that ultimate jumping off point. And I really wasn't there. It was just it was all almost mechanical. Like I was going through the steps because I'm like, oh, this is what's going to get me to where I'll never drink again. But I wouldn't, there wouldn't be anything behind it. Yeah. And I know that coming into the rooms for me before admitting, because I, I had a lot of prejudice uh, as well, just like you did uh, from my religious upbringing or religious experience. First, we, we had to admit that we were an alcoholic. Right. Um, and I think that's hard for many of us. That was very hard for me just to state my name is Holden and I'm an alcoholic. So and once I admitted that, there was a weight off my shoulder. But then it came to where I could accept that I was an alcoholic and accept the fact of that I would never in my future be able to drink like a normal individual because it's going to progress into what it was at my end, at my ending of the drinking. So for you... What was the difference between admitting to yourself that you were an alcoholic versus coming to terms and accepting that you were an alcoholic? Yeah, so, and the thing with me is that, yeah, I could admit that I was an alcoholic, you know, in high school and in my early 20s before I even got into the rooms because I knew what it was, you know, to, to be an alcoholic. And anytime I woke up in county jail or, you know, a mental, mental hospital or psych ward, I, I could admit it, you know, to, to the staff or, you know, to, to the judge, but to truly accept that I was an alcoholic, that, that, to me, that's a completely different jumping off point. Um, and it even talks about that, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on uh, page 30, where it, it says that we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. And those two lines for, for me sum it up that until I was ready to make that uh, determination of not just on an on a intellectual cognizant level, but on a very like 
innermost soul searching level of tapping into that ability to to surrender that and and just forego everything that I feel like I know about life and I know about you know this disease uh, and this malady that you know I am actually an alcoholic and there is no alternative for me except to to do the work you know to pick up the spiritual toolkit laid at my feet you know I wasn't I wasn't prepared to do anything that it required for me to actually you know sustain abstinence get to that point of sobriety and in recovery and ultimately do all the work to become recovered. So for me, that's really what it was, you know, and, and that's part of the process that it, it talks about in, in, in the literature where, it, you know, one of the processes of, you know, the, the soul searching leveling of, of our pride, you know, the confession of shortcomings, you know, which the process requires for, you know, its successful consummation. And that's on, you know, that's on page 25 of the big book, but, you know, I, I had to do all of those things. All of those things are part of our requirements for the f- process to be successful. So, you know, that for me, that was that was the first part of that and that, you know, almost like a domino effect. That was the first domino that has to tip over and the rest of them start falling, you know, and without that first initial tipping of the domino, you know, nothing else can follow after that. And I think, as you said, you kind of did that the wall towards one, two, three, drink, one, two, three, drink. I think maybe at that time as you were admitting you were an alcoholic, <clears throat> which for some it's easy, for some it's not. But I think for you to move forward past that that third step and not drink was I think maybe around the time that you were accepting that you were an alcoholic, that you knew you had to work the program in order to truly finally concede to it and not be able to drink. So once you were finally able to move past that third step and go into the fourth step, how much better did you feel doing that fourth, fourth through seventh step? I felt, you know, I, I felt not just better in the sense of where I did, especially, you know, the work I did in four and five of, of doing those and feeling any kind of relief or, you know, because for me it wasn't so much of, you know, going to someone with, you know, my secrets or a confession of sin or, you know, sharing with someone, you know, stuff that I've hidden about myself. For me, it's this process of transformation that I need to really do in in the work in steps four through seven in order, in in four through nine, and ultimately four through seven for, you know, for my internalized, you know, self to grasp what's going on and then turning over, you know, all of this to, to God. But and then, of course, eight and nine is me going and actually doing the required piece of admitting my faults to others where I wronged them. The thing about it is, is like doing that work, like I said, it, it's where I have that 180 degree turn where I start turning towards something bigger than myself. And, you know, I've identified, you know, that God can take away you know, this, this compulsion to drink, but, you know, like it talks about, you know, there's a, I have a whole world of problems where drinking and using any other chemical is just really, that's just a symptom of a, of a lar- much larger problem. And, you know, it, it talks about, you know, being, you know, self-deluded and 
self-seeking and selfish, that is the root of my problem. And until I was ready to face that and be rid of all that, then there was no hope in my recovery because, you know, I have to go in, you know, and with God's help and grace and mercy, dismantle my ego and my perception of others and, you know, these old ideas and, and this, these prejudices that I have in, in four and five and then turn them over to God and then go and clear the wreckage of my past in eight and nine. Yeah, and I think I mean four through well four through nine was a huge turning point for me because I think it especially taking pen to paper, it was very eye opening on the root of why I drank. Even though I was like, oh, I'm just having a good time, I didn't realize there was so many deep rooted things and so many wrongdoings of others in my addiction phase, and finally going through eight nine, admitting to yourself that you did something wrong. It's pretty easy. I mean, mm. I could tell myself that I did, oh, I fucked over this person every other day. But going to that person and saying, hey, I'm not even going to apologize at this point. Because, I mean, I'm sorry is just fucking words. But saying, I did you wrong. What can I do to make it right? Really shows that individual that you are actually sincere about correcting the wrongdoing. And a majority of the time, at least for me, what I found is that even being willing to make the amend to that individual, that's all they wanted. They didn't want anything else. I have so far have not had a single amends ask me for anything other than just admitting that I fucked them over. Right. And that's been my experience in every case so far as for all the amends that I've made where it's, you know, and I've also uncovered other things, you know, uh, about myself that was shown to me by other people because I mean that's that's the whole part of this process of of uncovering discovering and discarding that we do in in the work in steps four through nine is there are things that I don't know about me but others know about me or can see in me just like there's things that I keep hidden from others that I know about and they don't know about and then there's that, you know, that other part where there's things that I can't see in me or don't know about me. And there's in that in those same parts that others don't know about me or can't see about me, but God knows about them. And all of that is part of that discovery process. And, and, and that's what I'm cultivating and ultimately getting to the work in, in the discipline of 10 and 11 is to have, you know, God show me those parts and that stuff that needs to be revealed to me through time, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And if I'm doing the work in four through nine and then living in the discipline of 10, 11, then that stuff will be revealed to me because, you know, like you were saying, there have been things that I've gone to people to make amends for that people have told me things, not in a way of where they're like, you know, putting me, you know, on, you know, you know, holding my feet to the fire, but just saying, hey, yeah, you know, you also did this too. And I was like, I didn't even realize I did that to this person. And it, but it, and it, like I said, it's not a way of them trying to, you know, you know, like level me or, or it, I mean, it, it's just one of those things of like, God, I did that to this, to this person. I didn't even realize I did that to this person or all this hurt. And that's why I love the fact of making direct amends to, to, to people um, on your, on your step you know, that, that are on your step eight list is because you can see the pain and hopefully 
God willing, you'll start seeing the healing begin almost immediately. There's not been a one case in the men's that I've made so far where I have not seen just that pain and suffering that I caused fall off someone. You just see it fall off their face. Yeah, which is, I mean, incredible to see that even though you did hurt them, that just by coming to them and trying to correct it, that's like that can heal them in a way because that gives them that sense of closure for many people. So I, <clears throat> I know that there are many people that go through the 12 steps and they kind of have to start over. They have to find a new sponsor. And kind of it's because they are strictly compliant to the steps because they feel that going through the steps will get them sober, although they're unhappy and still have that um, like obsession of the mind. And I think it's until they do a full surrender to the steps rather than just complying with the rules and the, the guidelines of the program is when they actually have that, that change of mind. So can you kind of share what your experience is with compliance compared to surrender when it comes to the program and the steps? Yeah, so for me, you know, you know, f- truly compliance is, you know, I'm, I'm coming in here, you know, I could be coming in here for a hundred different reasons. I could be coming in here because, you know, as I have done in, in, in my time in the rooms of, or going through a program of, you know, whether it's mandated by, you know, a, a, a therapist or it's mandated by, you know, release papers from a psych ward or, you know, try to keep my family, trying to keep my job, trying to keep my house. You know, there, like I said, there could be a hundred reasons why I, I'm going to meetings and getting a sponsor and, you know, half-assing the steps. World of difference between that and truly surrendering, you know, and ultimately surrendering to a higher power and really turning everything over in my life to that power, um, like I said, it's a night and day difference. And because I, I, I see it all the time, you know, because I've been in and out of the rooms for a long time, that, you know, Pete, you get people in here, you know, they've just, they've just been released from treatment, you know, they're, they're going to meetings, they're, they're, calling, uh, they're calling every day to get a bed, you know, they're you know, they're, they're like, oh, get a sponsor. Yeah, I'll get a sponsor. You know, 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah, I could do that. And then 30, 60 days later, they're like, you know, you mean I got to go to a meeting every day? And I see that all the time. And I hear it all the time. And that to me is, yeah, that's, that's compliance. But to truly surrender and admit that, you know, I'm hopeless without actually doing this work that's required, then there's no hope for someone like me. You know, it's just like the same thing where, you know, if, you know, if I've got a lot of money in the bank and, you know, uh, you know, and I've got a house and, you know, my, my wife is seemingly happy. She's not. But to me and my like going back to that whole my perception of reality is off, uh, you know, there, then I don't I don't need God's help. And so I just I'll comply, but I'm not going to surrender. And so that to me is you know, what's required in order to be able to actually, you know, work the steps and, and do the work. Because, you know, we never get here on a winning streak. No one ever comes in when, you know, they've, you know, just had like a couple bad days, you know. F- you know, for me, you know, anytime I've, I- I've been in the rooms up until this point and this last point, 
you know, just going to meetings, you know, is it's always been, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a really, you know, shitty, rough, you know, year or months or whatever, and I've been brutalized by life. And, you know, that's that's what drives me back into the rooms. But I never did the work up until now. And, you know, for me, you know, that that, you know, it, it's all summed up, you know, in, in chapter five of the big book, you know, when it says, you know, we stood at the turning point and we asked his protection and care with complete abandon. There's, there it is, that word abandon. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. You know, it's like, you know, if you abandon a, sh- a ship, can you jump back on? And you can't. So you have to be at that point where you, you're ready to just give it all over to something, you know, bigger than yourself. And, you know, you're, you know, and, that, and that's ultimately what it is, is not just turning my will and life over to the care of God. I've got to do the work then after that in order to have that 180 degree turn that I was talking about earlier and get that connectedness with life, with others and, you know, with my higher power. Yeah, I think <clears throat> compliance, I mean, my, my sponsor didn't say 90 to 90. I kind of put that on myself and I hit 90 days or 90 meetings, sorry, in 70 days. And I was miserable in my sobriety. And I think it wasn't for me, I was kind of faking it, thinking that fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. And it took, I would say three months into my sobriety and I actually just celebrated four months a few days ago. It was three months in until finally I was like, I can't be miserable anymore because I'm gonna have to go drink. And I think at that point, was my turning point of compliance into the surrender entirely to my higher power to give everything. Because I still thought I could control shit. And I mean, I run businesses in my life and work and go to school and do all kinds of stuff. And I thought, there's no way I can't be in control because my life is just so crazy. I have to control it. And it was up until like three months, just slightly after that, I was like, you know what? God's going to do what he can do. And that's all I and that's all it I that's all that it'll take for me to be happy and I finally fully surrendered in this past three weeks to a month of going into my four months has been probably the happiest I've ever been in sobriety and in this past month is I've only been going to maybe two to three meetings a week and I've so well, I mean, don't get me wrong, 90 and 90 is not a bad thing. Um, I think for me and my controllingness, um, I, I was just gung-ho about 90 and 90 and not really focused on the program itself and being surrendering to the steps and to my higher power. It was more about just compliance and me doing what I was told to do via sponsor. Right, and, I, and, and anyone that's been around the rooms long enough has, has been in that exact, exact same position where it's like, all right, you know, I'm going to do 90 and 90. I've done that where I'm like, yeah, yeah, and then, you know, like, like you said, you know, I ended up doing 180 and 90, and I've, I've done that where I've gone to two or three meetings a day for like three months, and it never, it never changed anything because I mean I would come into the meeting and or come to go to a meeting and I'd, I'd feel like shit, and then I would sit in the meeting and just be miserable the whole time, you know, and then the self pity and self loathing and like the meeting wouldn't make me feel better. I've, I've heard people say, you know, ridiculous things over the years of like, you know, oh, just if you feel bad, just go to a meeting and you'll feel better. And that's never worked for me. Not once. When I'm in that place where I am at the jumping off place and I am ready to drink, I'm either ready for a bullet or a bottle 
there's nothing going to meeting isn't going to save my ass. It's just not. I not in my personal experience. So I mean, maybe out there, if, if there's someone out there that that works for them, that's that's great. But in my personal experience and in in, in working the steps and actually doing the work. You know, looking back, it was it was a fool's errand the whole time thinking, oh, if I just make this many meetings or if, you know, if I do this or do that, you know, pick up a new hobby. You know, I'll hear a lot of that where people are like, oh, you know, I started doing hobbies that I, you know, that, that I haven't done in years. I'm like, great. <laughs> what, what else are you doing that's actually going to, you know, keep you sober other than, hey, you know, at some point I, I did crocheting with my grandma and. You know, I have fond memories of it, so I'm, I started doing that again. I'm like, okay. Yeah, and I think people think that a idle mind, or not, not an idle mind, a busy mind will keep you away from drinking, which is kind of where my mindset was at the very beginning, but it's not. The only thing that's going to keep you away from drinking, um, for me, because um, I can only speak for myself, is keeping the conscious contact, asking for help, asking for him to take away the desire of drinking, the obsession of it, and understanding why I chose to drink and being able to cope with those things as they come out. Because now that I do my step 10 with sponsor or anybody else, my, my circle, I don't get build up to that anger point of people pissing me off to the point where I'm like, shit, I need to go get a shot to deal with these people. And my day just without getting angry, without getting frustrated. I mean, we all have frustrations in life. Don't get me wrong. But being able to just quickly take a 20-second pause, take a breath, exhale all the bullshit, say a quick prayer, say, guide my thinking away from being angry or whatever it may be, completely is like that psychic change, what it talks about in the book. And it it'll completely alleviates whatever bullshit that I'm going through in that moment. Yeah, I agree 100%. Is that's, that's, and that's a huge requirement of that unblocking that you do in, in steps four through nine is getting to that point. Because, you know, I, I, I've heard people before, you know, say, oh, I have a conscious contact with God. Or, and I, I've heard people that have told me, you know, like, oh, I have a 24 by 7 conscious contact with God. And I'm like, you know, that, that maybe any time I've ever heard someone claim that they had a 24 by 7 conscious contact with God, they're usually on the, on the TV asking for money. You know, and and that's the thing about it is I have faith 24 hours a day. I really do. But for me, that conscious contact is something that I just like spiritual experiences and spiritual awakening is something that is intermittent. And that's where the faith comes in. That's where faith for me comes in. And and it gets me through those dry spells. And, you know, it's only by doing, you know, like, like it talks about in the, in the book of, of doing God's work, you know, doing his work and performing his work well, is that's where that, that conscious contact comes from, is doing, you know, what I need to do, of being of maximum service to, to others, and really, you know, playing the role that's assigned to me and staying in my own lane, can I, you know, get that the, those glimpses of that conscious contact and those spiritual experiences. Because I don't have, usually, I usually don't have spiritual experiences when everything is going great. I usually have spiritual experiences, you know, when things are, things are kind of, you know, going bad. And it's like, I have like an aha moment, like an epiphany, you know, as some people call them. And that's usually when, when I'll have, you know, that, that conscious contact or a spiritual experience. You know, and I, I strongly believe that uh, a majority of my, you know, 
awakenings or experiences are just me pulling my head out of my butt and seeing what everybody else is seeing the whole time. Yeah, most definitely. So we're kind of coming towards the end of the episode. We've kind of talked about your experience, your strength. So why don't you share everybody like the hope, um, how your life has changed in sobriety um, for the better, and maybe anything else that you want to share with everybody that we haven't touched on. Yeah, so I mean, for me, it's been a slow roll. I mean, you know, I've really only started truly making my amends over the past couple of weeks. So it has been a kind of a slow roll for me because, uh, you know, as, as it's said and, and implied and explicitly said actually in the book is, you know, you know, this, the, you know, the 10 to 20 years of, of, of drinking is going to make a skeptic out of anyone that's a loved one around me. And so I'm building that trust and I'm building those, those bridges that I burnt, you know, as I was walking over them, you know, with, you know, my closest loved ones, but, you know, that's that's the thing about it, and that's the beauty is I'm actually starting to see those changes in those relationships and those dynamics. And I'm and especially doing the nightly in a review of my day, I'm seeing where things are progressively getting to a place to where, you know, like you were saying earlier, where I can see and realize more quickly and call someone more quickly when I get to those spots where I need to make amends or I need to to talk to someone, you know, and for me, the, the big hope has been that the longer I, I'm staying sober, the more help I realize I need, you know. And, you know, that was something that Sandy Beach, uh, at AA speaker, said, you know, before in one of his talks is, you know, you know that someone asked him, you know, how, how have you stayed sober? Because he was, at the time, sober almost 50 years. And he was like, and that's what he said. He said, the, more, the longer I've stayed sober, the more helpless I've realized I need and the more help I need from other people. And for, for me, that's just true. You know, that's just, if, if I can stop trying to, to arrange life to suit my needs or my plans and designs and just let everybody do what they want to do and live within their free will, and then, and like it talks about, you know, I can exercise, you know, my, my will, you know, within the bounds of making sure that I align it with God's. And if I do that, then and align my will with God's and that's where the hope is for me is if I can get to that place and stay in that place then and perform his work well then yeah I'm gonna I mean I'm gonna have bad days we all have bad days um another thing that I always hear is like you know my my best day uh my worst day sober is my uh better than my uh uh worst day drinking you know drink the way I did you know by now my by Worst day sober is a lot better than my last day drunk, but, you know, you know, that's where the hope is, is that, you know, things can get rough, but I know how to deal with them now on a level of instead of, hey, I'm going to go pick up a drink or, you know, ossify myself. And instead of doing that, I can turn and say, hey, you know what, I need to do a little bit of action here. I need to get, you know, spiritually connected um, and I need to help someone instead of worried about, you know, what I want to do for myself. Yeah, I mean, service <clears throat> is incredibly important, I feel, um, throughout the program. And being of service to others without any expectation back, with any, anything, you don't want anything from this individual, you don't need anything, you don't expect it. When you are doing things that are selfless acts for other people, especially alcoholics or any other addicts that are still struggling or at the beginning stages of their sobriety, or even long-term even, it helps you stay sober. It helping that, and I think that's the key in the the, um, the program. And essentially, essentially, is 
Helping others helps yourself stay sober. I know when I first started calling my sponsor, bitching, complaining about my day or about this or about that, like, and I finally apologized. I was like, oh my God, like, you have your own issues, let alone dealing with my own bullshit. And then he's like, nah, dude. He's like, for one, that's what he's there for. But for two, he's like, you help me stay sober. So, um, which is super important. But, uh, so, I mean, thank you so much for joining us, Brandon. Mm -hmm. Um, So being a rainbow-hosted podcast... Um, what would you, I know you, you, what do you identify as sexuality wise? Uh, I am bisexual. All right. Well, 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 good to know. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so what would you tell the person in the LGBTQ community that is still struggling right now? Um, really the, the thing is, is there, there is a huge fear of, of coming into the rooms and, and, and being different. I mean, because I know within the LGBTQ community, that, you know, you're already feeling pretty different, you know, from everybody else, you know, alone, you know, without, you know, going to a room of now, you know, I've got to identify as, you know, one of these drunks. So there's a lot of fear in that, that, that couples with that of, you know, the fact that, you know, some people have an inkling of what AA is, you know, they they know it's a spiritual program. A lot of people misidentify as a religious program. So they think they're going into like a religious room. And there is a lot of, misgivings and associations of especially people that grew up in the church that are you know like us that are you know that that have you know a, a, a sexual orientation that doesn't line up with certain principles that you know we were beating over our heads with when we were kids that you know you're gonna you're gonna immediately be you know cast out and you just gotta you know that's not that's not what you know any room I've been into has been like and you know I I you know, and so that's why, you know, I'm like, just just go for it. Face the fear. Don't let something else, another excuse, keep you from really doing what you need to do, and that's get sober. Yeah, that was my excuse, and I and I have found that coming into the rooms. I mean, and I, like, when I speak, a purse falls out of my mouth, and so it's I can't try to closet myself, and it, the rooms have been more than accepting to me in any room that I've walked into. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. Hit that follow button to be notified about new episodes every week. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at The Sober Unicorn Podcast or on our website at thesoberunicornpodcast.com. There you will find our episodes as well as our very own sober-owned shop featuring products from small businesses that are sober-owned. And remember, everyone, don't be normal, be a unicorn, but better yet, be a sober unicorn. Sober Unicorn.